what I want to do, though, mostly, is to... Um, I'm a teacher. I teach uh, how to interpret the Bible. I'm wondering if my computer's going to stay here. So it will. Okay, and so I'm not just going to lecture or preach tonight. We're going to try to have a little bit of interaction uh, at the tables and uh, some give and take along the way. Okay? So th the goal is to... Uh, now, let's just be honest. This is a weird passage. You might wonder, why in the world is this borderline R-rated material in the Bible? There's a reason, and it really does apply in our lives. All the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are, uh, and everywhere in between, are inspired by God. They are for our benefit, even strange passages like this. So a few years ago, I wrote a book with one of my fellow pastors at Christ Fellowship, uh, Cherrydale, uh, called Seven Arrows. Uh, and it's uh, pointing or aiming Bible readers in the right direction. And one of the things that Matt uh, talks about in the chapter on, uh, one of the chapters about applying it, particularly like what does the passage demand of me, he describes passages kind of in three ways. Clear, blurry, and broken. Now, there are some passages like in Paul when we get to the exhortations to do this and, and don't do that and to be clothed with Christ. Those kinds of things are, are very clear. Like Paul's going to explain what to do. It's very straightforward. But then there are other passages that are a little more difficult to understand why in the world they're in the Bible. And, and this is one of those, maybe blurry or a, a little broken. So what I hope we can do tonight is is practice some techniques for slowing down, honestly. One of the most important things we can do when we read the Bible is not to read it too fast, but to slow down and pay attention to what's going on. And we're going to point out some, some things along the way in the text when we slow down that will help us get to what it is that Moses was trying to teach the audience uh, that received this about their history and about what that means for the future. And when we get to the end, we're going to look at some, some ways in which this passage is going to, oddly enough, set some trajectories for some things we're going to see all the way through to Revelation. All right? Okay. So let's read. We're going to read a pretty long section here. And from Genesis 29, 1 to 30, 24, I'm going to read it fairly fast. And then we'll come back and look at it piece by piece. All right? Okay. Now, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, um, if it doesn't look exactly like what you've got. All right, so Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. So he's been, he's run away from Esau, and he is going, uh, essentially, back to the place where the servant went several chapters before uh, to find his daddy a wife, and he's going to find himself one too, well, at least... Well, he might get more than he bargained for there, but nonetheless. All right, verse 2. He looked and saw a well in a field. This is very similar to what we've seen before. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered by or watered from the well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return, to the, return the stone to its place over the well's opening, maybe to keep out um, just random travelers, maybe for safety, maybe to keep uh, animals out of the well, what, whatever, okay? So, going on from there. 
Now we get into the story proper there in verse 4. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. It's polite conversation, right? And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go and let them graze. But they replied, We can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. Okay? While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up, rolled the stone from the opening, and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news, and this is very similar, by the way, to the previous story back in a few chapters ago with uh, the servant that came looking for Isaac, a wife. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him. Then he took him to his house and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. And we'll come to find out in more ways than one. After Jacob had played or stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? This is a... you better watch out. Maybe sounds too good to be true kind of situation. Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. That's a ringing endorsement, right? Uh, Stay with me. So Jacob uh, worked for seven years for Rachel, and then we get this wonderful love story kind of moment. The, the music would swell in the background of the movie, and they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it Rachel for Rachel that I work for you? Why have you deceived me? They're more alike than he would like to have thought. Laban answered, it is not the custom in our country to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. It's a lot of weddings in a couple of weeks, isn't it? Especially, you should normally just have one groom, right? And Laban, or, or more than one groom, not one like we have here. Sorry, I said that backwards. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Yeah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, uh, he opened her womb, but Rachel was able to conceive. 
Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again and gave birth to a son, and said, The Lord heard that I am hated and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last my husband will come attached to me, because I have borne thee three son, or borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. Then she said, Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. Plot thickens, right? So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. That's an interesting response. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, and think about even that, like with the story of Jacob, I wrestled with my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob's son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. People are crazy, right? And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the women called me happy. So she named him Asher. Man, well, it, it's... The plot's going to thicken again. So now, Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now that you also want to take my son's mandrakes. Well then, Rachel said, He can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Like, this is insanity. This is like sister wives, real house, like this is a mess. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come with me, for I've hired you, think about that with her husband, I've hired you with my son's mandrakes, so Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving, me, giving my slave to my husband. Like, this is ludicrous, right? And she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again. And bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. And said, may the Lord add another son to me. All right, so now we're going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to look at what happens. In a little more detail, 
in a little more carefully, and then we're going to draw out some implications from that that hopefully we can apply in our lives. All right, so story starts. Now, here's the thing that sometimes happens when we start to read the Bible is we try, well, let's just be honest. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, all these big words that says it's true. And we know that these are the very words of God that have been written down by these men who were inspired to write it. Which automatically, I think, causes us at times to think, there's no way in the world I can understand this because these are the very words of God. How in the world could I understand them? Like, you might read book after book after book, whether it be novels or nonfiction or very technical things in your field of work. But when it comes to the Bible, you're freaked out. Well, hopefully we're going to lower that factor tonight. So let's just think about this as a story. It's a story, right? There there are theological points. These are God-inspired words, but it's just a story. So let's see if we can figure out how to get to the point of this ridiculously insane story. Okay? All right, so it starts out, (coughs) excuse me, in verses 1 through 3, it's the introduction to the story. We're, we're, we're moving to a new phase, and there are new things happening. There are new people. So that's one thing. Like when you're reading a story in the Bible, you're going to read it in much the same way that you read a novel. Now, these things really happened. I mean, who could make this up, right? These things really happened. And Moses is certainly shaping the story to make some very important points about God and his people, but it is still just a story. So we want to look at, like, who's doing the various things that are done and what are they doing? And and look for words that are repeated. Like, that's kind of common sense, right? If somebody uses the same words five times in six verses, maybe that's important, right? And then if we have a conversation, that's really significant most of the time because it's really difficult to write a conversation. It's way easier to summarize it. So if the author goes into writing conversations between folks, pay really, really close attention to what they're saying because there's probably something really important that is being conveyed there. And then just listen for tone and Is there more being said? Is this said with joy and happiness or is it said with anger and frustration? And you can get that and that's going to point us in the direction of where we need to go to understand the point. Okay? All right, so let's see how it starts. Jacob resumed his journey, went on to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field and you'll notice that I uh, highlighted here well and water in blue And see how many times we see well and water. This is an important place, right? It's a gathering spot. People are going to come there because if you're in a pretty arid place, you're going to need water for the animals to survive and for the people to survive. So he looked and saw a well in a field. Very similar to the story we've already seen a few chapters before. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep 
were watered from this well. So as you can kind of visualize what's happening, it's a hot afternoon probably. You've got these three flocks of sheep laying there around this watering hole. You've got shepherds, you know, probably trying to find a place out of the sun. They're all there, but there's a problem. Even though we're at a well, there's a big old rock over the top of the well. Okay? That's fairly normal so far. Now, you'll notice there in the bold part, the author, Moses has explained some things to us. So that's another thing. When the author sort of interrupts the story to tell us what's going on, we need to pay attention to what he's telling us. So look for that. I'm going to interrupt the story with this brief message. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. So let me ask you a question. What is Moses telling us that's important about this circumstance that's about to unfold? What does this description say about the rock that's there? It's big. This is a more than one man job. And these are not... Shrinking violets. These are, these are shepherds who have strength. They are manly men who work out in the fields. They're doing hard labor, right? But it takes a lot of them to move that rock. All right? So the big stone covering it. People are already gathered. Now it's time for a story to unfold. So let's see what happens. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. So now we're getting back into that other story. There's the connection. He's reached the destination. Mama's told him, Go back to my family, and you'll be safe there from your brother because you've stolen the birthright from him, even though you are the child of promise. You still thought you had to steal it. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Oh, brings up his uncle. Connection to the community. He's not just some random stranger. <clears throat> they answered him, we know him. Which, as the story unfolds, may or may not be a good thing. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here's his daughter Rachel coming with the sheep. So now we got a new character. Rachel. And it might even be, as the story unfolds, they're all kind of there waiting for Rachel. Show up. So here she comes with her sheep. Then Jacob said, look. So notice, now think about how you would feel about this circumstance. And by the way, what it tells us about Jacob and his attitude even now after his encounter with God. Look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. So what does he do here? Is he... Is he, you know, kind to them? Is he uh, patient? Or is he, I'm just going to walk up here and tell all you guys how to do your job. It's the latter, right? That same kind of arrogance, still there. He's not completely broken from that. Not yet. So he bosses them around. Water the flock. Go out, let them graze. And on some level, you can kind of understand. Like, 
why are you sitting here in the middle of the day when it's a perfect time for your sheep to graze? Why are you sitting here around a well? So what do you think the reasons are? Rachel, probably, or they can't move the rock, or just abject laziness. Okay? So we've got to kind of feel for the story. Jacob is still kind of rotten, maybe a lot rotten. You guys need to get to work, because we'll find out he's probably kind of a hard worker, surprisingly. And thankfully, they don't hurt him for being so bossy. All right, so... They replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered. Rachel's gotten here. And the stone is rolled away from the well's opening, which might imply we need everybody's help to get this moved. Then we'll water the sheep and go on our way. Well, let's see what happens next. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess, which seems a bit redundant, but it does indicate that she was hard worker as well. And then look at what happens in verse 10. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, and notice how all of that is strung together and Rachel is emphasized for a second time. As soon as he saw, as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Now, I was reading in a commentary earlier today, and I about fell out of my chair when um, it's, the commentator said that Martin Luther in his commentary on this passage says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gave him the ability to pick up the rock and move it for her. I think that's a bit over the top. But, but, I mean, Moses didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit, but that's all right. I think we all have seen various circumstances where young men like to show off for young women usually to pretty comical ends. This time he actually pulled it off. And by the way, what does that tell us about? I mean, first of all, think about in the previous stories, like he's terrified of his brother Esau, who is so much more powerful than he, but yet even, even now as we see Jacob, he's no weakling. So he, you know, Holy Spirit or not, bows up, Moves the rock, waters the sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and this is family, kind of we're family kind of kiss. It would be weird if he kissed her and then started crying loudly, I think. So then Jacob kissed Rachel, wept loudly. He told Rachel, and notice, by the way, how many times her name is used here. Like there's an almost boring, I'm like, Rachel, 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 Rachel. You've probably seen boys like that before. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative. Now, that part's a little awkward, but remember, it's a different time, different place. That he was her father's relative, Rebecca's son. She ran and told her dad, told her father. So he comes back, and it's very much like the story when Rebecca got uh, hitched or chosen to be hitched. When Laban heard the news that his sister's son, Jacob, about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to him, and notice again, ran, met, hugged, kissed. This is 
This is familial embrace. Family has been reunited. He is here. This is going to be great. Took him to his house. Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. And here we have a bit of foreshadowing. We have that in the Bible as well. Like you might see that in, in some novels that you've read. Like there's foreshadowing for things that are going to happen. So there's not ever a random word here. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Like, you're my relative. I'm not going to take advantage of you. I would never take advantage of you. Better watch out, right? And by the way, like we all would recognize, it's a dangerous thing when the boss says, tell me what I ought to pay you. Now, Laban had two daughters. It's the first time we've heard about daughter number two, the older one. We've heard a lot about Rachel. This is where the sort of the underlying ominous music starts to play in the story, right? The older was named Leah. The younger was named Rachel. We've heard about her. And then verse 17, Leah had tender eyes, which... Some translations will translate it as weak to indicate that she was not very attractive. Some will say that this was her most attractive feature, her eyes. Either way, she wasn't Rachel. At least not in Jacob's eyes. Rachel was shapely and beautiful. And here we have verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. If we hadn't known that before... We know it now. Jacob loved Rachel. So he answered Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. All right. That's the deal. Well, then we get the deception. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man, which again, as we said a minute ago, that's not the most ringing of endorsements, but... It'll do, I guess, for Jacob. Stay with me. So Jacob stays. Now we have Jacob work for seven years for Rachel, and they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. It's a romance novel. And my son would run into the other room if this was, my nine-year-old would run into the other room if this was on the television at our house. You know. Then Jacob said to Laban, all right, now notice in the course of one verse, it was like a day to her, him or like a, it's just a few days. Well, that's helpful because Moses has skipped over that whole time period. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, seven years have passed, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. That's a bit crass, but okay. So Laban invited all the men. It's a big feast, big party, sponsored a feast. We know like from the New Testament, like in John chapter 4, when you have a big party in the ancient Near East for the wedding, you're going to have a lot of people and they're going to get drunk. So there's a big party. And by the way, there's nothing here where Laban has said you can have the younger one. If we read it real carefully and slowly. And then we find the problem. That evening... Laban took his daughter Leah 
This would be commonplace for the bride to be veiled, both during the ceremony and after. Andy's a little drunk, probably. Laban took his daughter Leah. She's complicit in this, so, so you got to think about that as well. Like this is a disaster. This is a guy who is 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 being unkind to his daughters. They're already, it seems, they don't get along. The only time it seems they get along is in the passage after this when they get in league against their dad. This is a mess. So he sends her in to marry him and then to sleep with him, and she goes along with it. Gave her to Jacob. He slept with her. This is just awful. And then we have this seemingly odd verse. Like, why in the world would Moses tell us Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave? We're going to find out, and it ain't good. And then, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. Like, whoa, what a surprise. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Like, I worked for seven years and you've done this to me? And so there's this, there's this irony, right? Like, what has he been doing all his life? Deceiving, cutting the corner, grasping at the heel of his brother. Like, this is a guy who's just like his uncle, and now he's just mad because what he's done to other people has been done to him. Why have you deceived me? I think he got asked that question too, didn't he? All right, we'll see what happens next. Laban answered, it is not the custom. So notice he's got his justification. Aren't we often like that when we've done something deceptive or wrong or sinful? We've got our justification for our bad action right there in our back pocket. He's been planning this for a while. It's not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of what... And by the way, look at the solution here. Like, as I was reading this, it sort of dawned on me something that was not really made clear in Sunday school. I had it in my mind, I'll be honest, and, and I teach New Testament, so this is not something that I teach regularly, to be honest. And so if there's a question that I can answer, I'm just going to say I teach New Testament. Um, <laughs> notice his solution. Complete this week of wedding celebration. And we'll give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration. Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. So now we're 10 days, maybe, maybe 14. He's had two weddings to two sisters. This is a recipe for disaster, right? I mean, you don't have to be very bright or have a lot of common sense to know this is terrible. Even in a world where there are uh, folks that have 
uh, multiple wives. This is insanity. And by the way, you know, some folks would like to talk about, you know, the Bible, there's polygamy in the Bible in the Old Testament. One thing you're never going to see is the Bible ever saying that's a good idea. God's design is one man, one woman for a lifetime. And when you start acting like, frankly, like the pagan nations around you, this is what you get. This lunacy. So then we have that other sort of mirror kind of thing. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So he kept his end of the bargain, which is kind of a surprise, frankly. All right. So now, now we're going to get into a very quick, rapid movement through the years. It's not really necessarily, we're not told exactly how many years, but it's a good number of years because when we get to the end with Reuben, he's old enough to be working out in the fields. So there's a lot of back and forth and you got to keep your uh, eye on the ball here. All right, so when the Lord saw that Lee was hated, and by the way, notice that comparison. Rachel's loved, Lee is hated. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It also was a bit weird, let's just be honest, that it says that Leah was hated because he is going to have six children with her. Well, more than that, but six boys. Lock that away. We're going to talk about that in a minute. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and notice, by the way, this language, the Lord saw. This is really, really important language. Throughout the Bible, but particularly in these first five books. So like when we get to Exodus, you're going to have the Lord heard, the Lord saw, and He knew the sufferings of His people. So when the Lord sees and the Lord hears, the Lord acts in behalf of His people. And we're going to see that even here with just one person. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel, and by the way, it just demonstrates throughout the whole story that God alone is the giver of life. That, that every, every time a child is conceived, that is a miraculous gift of God. So like even in the midst of a, of a story like this where all of these crazy chaotic things are going on, we see right there in kind of plain sight God opens Leah's womb so she can have children. Rachel, no. Not yet. But we're starting to see a pattern here. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel wasn't able to conceive. Now, have you in your study of Genesis ever heard that before? Where have you heard it? Who? Sarah and? and Ray, yeah, and, and so Rebecca. So think about that for a second. This is now third generation. I better get behind the microphone again. Third generation in a row where we've had this issue arise, right? So think back in chapter 12. God says to Abram, your family is going to be so numerous 
more than the stars that you can count. Have you ever tried to count stars on a clear night? It's next to impossible. More than the sand of the sea. We see that through the story of being told. And we get there in chapter 15. We're 10 years in after the initial promise that God is going to give him a family and that through that family all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we're 10 years in and he's 85, she's 75 past the normal having baby stage. You know, I was 45 when our five-year-old was born. I can't imagine being 85 or 95 or 100. I barely made it here this evening. I mean, there's a reason why people have children when they're young. And, and I still got like half a century on poor old Abram. So here, 10 years in, 10 years in, no baby. There's this crisis of faith back in chapter 15. You remember that? Like, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. And then, again, Rachel can't... So Isaac is finally born. And his name means laughter because his mama laughed when she heard he was going to be like, there ain't no way. And then Rachel has these twins. And now... You've got this odd thing. The mama that's not loved is having babies and the mama who's loved, well, she's not a mama yet. Because God's the only one who can give children. But there's also this sort of thing that may be gnawing in the back of our minds. Huh. She's not had a baby yet. But if she does, that baby could be really, really special. And he's going to be. So, now we get these names. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. I gave him a son. Surely he'll love me. We're going to look at these names in a minute. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard that I am hated and has given me this son also. So she named him Simi. She conceived again. This is a rapid family tree right here, isn't it? She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will come. And notice the pain of this. The Lord's seen my affliction. Surely he'll love me now. The Lord's heard that I am hated. He's given me this son. So the Lord has seen, the Lord has heard, third kid, maybe at last, finally, he'll be attached to me because I've born three sons. And if you're old enough like me, there's a tune that goes in your head as soon as you hear that. All right, so verse 35, and she conceived again, gave birth to a son. And notice the change here. Maybe. You think maybe something is happening where she's getting it at this point. Later events, to the contrary. This time, I don't care about that idiot. I'm just going to praise the Lord. The Lord has seen. The Lord has heard. The Lord has provided. I'm just going to praise the Lord regardless of Him. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Thank you for that, Moses. All right, so chapter 30, and we need to pick up the pace. I'm always accused of not picking up the pace, so let's see if we can get this done. All right, so when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, first time the relationship has flipped. Rachel's been 
She's had the upper hand the whole time of this whole marriage. And now she hasn't got any babies. Her sister's got four. She's losing this race, which right away shows us there's a problem. She lashes out at him. Give me sons or I will die. Nothing about, nothing, you know, nothing that a good bit of restraint won't help right there. All right. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Now Jacob becomes angry. First time, any problems? Am I in the place of God? Your problem is with God, not with me, kind of, which is dangerous, I think. God has withheld offspring from you. So we're reminded again, God alone gives children. And now it takes a terrible turn. Then she said, here's my maid, Bilhah, go sleep with her. What? This is the Bible for crying out loud, right? This is the kind of thing that goes through your mind. Go sleep with her, she'll bear children for me. So that through her rights, who can build a family? It just gets worse. It's, it's, it's this thing like sin just keeps escalating until it's confronted. Now, it's not going to get any better for a while. So Rachel gave, gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife. He slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God is, and notice how she's giving God this credit for her sin. Like, this is crazy. God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel said, Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, like I've contended with God in this, like her husband, and I've beaten my sister. Like, this is just terrible. She named him Naphtali. And you can, by the way, understand where this is headed when the Joseph story comes along, right? You can, this is like all of the sin coming home to roost. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah, gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob's son. Then Leah said, what good fortune? What? Like, there, do you see the irony that builds in this? Like, they're thanking God and praising God for their sin. Like, this is how messed up we are, apart from God's grace. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I'm happy that the women call me happy. So she named him Asher. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest, so he's older, he's the oldest, and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother, Leah, mother Leah, Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So we got this question, like, I want this, give it to me. But Leah replied, isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now think about the, like the comparison of the mandrakes that he's brought from the field with her husband. Seems that her view of him has kind of gone down a little bit over time. Imagine that. Now you want to take my son's mandrakes too? Like, come on. This is, these people, wow. Well, then Rachel said, he can sleep with you. <laughs> like, like, so now he's just become like this pawn in this game. Ah, you take him tonight. In exchange for the food. I mean, this is just, and, 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 and by the way, think about how, like, even in these stories about how food has been used as a weapon along the way, like these, it's just, it's just out of hand. Which, by the way, should remind us that if God can use these people, He can use us. 
I mean, this is crazy. And this is the family through whom all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. All right. So when Jacob came in from the field that evening, it's going to get more ridiculous. Leah went out to him and said, you come with me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. Like he's just, he's encountered God, but he's lost his mind. God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore a, Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. Like, give me a break. Like, this is how deluded they are. But that's what sin does. Think about how sin has gone unrestrained in this family and the wreckage that it's created in the lives of these women, the wreckage that it will create in the lives of these children, and how out of all of this wreckage, God is going to establish for himself a people. All of this subterfuge, all of this lying, all of this backstabbing is going to leave us with the 12 patriarchs. And she named this one Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift. This time my husband will honor me. Finally, maybe. Six sons. She named him Zebulun. Later Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now, that's weird, isn't it? We've been reading along, reading along, reading along, all these boys, 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 boys. There certainly have been daughters born along the way, but now there's one that's mentioned, and that ought to give us alarm. Something's going to happen to her. Might be good. With this mess, it's probably going to be terrible. And then notice verse 22. After all this time, after all these years, after all the infighting, backbiting, lying, cheating, all of that, then God remembered Rachel. You see, this story, in all the chaos, at its heart is about a faithful God. God remembered he listened. And it's not like God forgot. But when we see this God remembered, we're going to see the same thing happen in the book of Exodus. God remembered the covenant that he made with Abram and he acted. So remembering means action. And he opened her womb. She conceived a bore a son and she said... God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, I'd like one more, which is about what we've seen of her character, right? She's going to get one, but not in this story. All right. So the first thing is we apply this, and we're going to finish really fast. I know we've been going a little longer maybe than normal. So love and hate, a biblical idiom. We see here, the seeds of something that's going to be really significant for understanding some really difficult passages later on in the Bible. Love and hate. These were, these were words that are powerful words. And they're important words. And they can lead us into some bad spots if we don't understand, particularly when we get to the ministry of Jesus, this biblical idiom. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes. Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. 
So she answered Laban, I'll, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you. We saw that. Then we have down there in verses 30 and 31, uh, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Love, hate. Now, as we've already seen, Leah has six kids. They got over their hate on some level, it seems. Okay? But right here we have the beginning of an idiom that's really important. Now, idioms, and that, you know, it, it's, it's this language that, they, that folks share in common that maybe not everybody shares in common. It's one of the hardest parts about being a college professor is because the only way you know idioms is if you're kind of in on what's going on, if you've heard them enough. So one of the ways you get the hang of biblical idioms is you've read the Bible a lot and you hear it over and over again. It starts to make sense because the words are not being used like they normally are used and they're used a little bit in an odd way. And the problem like with college students is those idioms change like with the wind. Like the wind changes direction, the idioms change. And like, you know, like a few years ago, they would say, those clothes are tight. And I'm like, what? Why is that a good thing? Like, this was like a great thing. Like the clothes are, are tight. And I'm like, I don't like tight clothes, but that means they looked good. And I'm like, you people are nuts. You know, like, so you got to be in on it. Okay, we'll see this in the Bible. Over in Malachi chapter one. Lord of the Lord, Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? What have you done for me lately, Lord? Aren't we like that? And then we go back to the story we just looked at. Wasn't, or before the story we just looked at. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now, if you go back and look, story, Esau's not quite done in the story. God's going to bless Esau in amazing ways. God is going to take care of Esau in abundance, but he's still not the child of promise. So when you compare the blessing and the grace and the mercy of God to the child of promise, Jacob with Esau, it looks like hate. Even if there is abundant grace, he's still not the child of promise. I turned his mountains into wasteland, gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Like this is, Malachi is explaining how God is going to judge these children of Esau that have mistreated the child, the children of the child of promise. But then we get to the teaching of Jesus. Let's look at Luke 14, 26 and 27. Here in Luke... The way that Luke explains this, if anyone comes to me, and notice the word here, this is a big word, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wait, hold on. Isn't that a problem? What does the... Oh yeah. Ten Commandments, those are kind of important, right? What are the children supposed to do? Honor your father and mother. You're supposed to love your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And now Jesus says, hate them? Now, if we didn't know this idiom, 
We might be confused. And let's just be honest. It's really easy to get confused here. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say, hate your own wife and children? Like, there are all kinds of commandments about taking care of your wife and children and loving your brothers and sisters. Like, this is really, really important. But look at what Matthew does. Matthew has the same passage. And here he makes it a little easier for his audience to get the point of the idiom. You see, the problem that Jesus is addressing is that in this context, the number one set of relationships is family. You never question the family bond. You never go against it. So like when, when uh, Andrew and Peter leave their father, you don't do that. When James and John leave their dad, you don't do that. But there's a new number one in town that overrides every association that we have. That's Jesus. So notice how Matthew, maybe not quite so memorably, but certainly clearly, the one who loves father or mother more than me. So think back to Leah and Rachel. Is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this love-hate image plays itself out throughout the Bible. So when we see these set opposite one another, we can understand what the biblical authors are trying to say. And it goes all the way back to this crazy story back in Genesis 29 and 30. All right, so another thing, names. So these names matter. So let's just look at these really fast. Reuben, see, son. Simeon, sounds like the Hebrew word, heard. The Lord heard. Levi, sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Attached. Judah, sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. Praise. Like these names matter. So like when we see these names of these folks, so like with, uh, so like with Rachel and Leah, and Leah. Leah means cow. Rachel means you, like a lamb. She's a shepherd. Yes. Like the names matter. So when in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, pay attention to the names and the etymological roots of those names matter a lot of the time. And they're going to give us a foreshadowing of the people's lives. So think about with Jesus. What does the angel tell Joseph in the dream that they were calling? Emmanuel. Why does that matter? Because God's with us. Names matter. And we'll see this throughout all of them. Dan means judged. He's going to be the one, by the way, his family's the one through whom all the idolatry enters into Israel. Naphtali, wrestling. Gad, sounds like the Hebrew word for fortune. Actually, I didn't put the right verse there. Uh, Asher, happy. I'm the happy, the happy, the women call me happy. Issachar sounds like the word for wages, reward. Zebulun, honor. Joseph, may he add, and also sounds like taken away. So pay attention as you go throughout the Old Testament, as you read in the Old Testament, particularly if you're, if you're struggling with like, why is this character here? What is the significance of this character? Maybe, look, your Bible probably have a little a letter or number 
take you down to the footnotes and it'll tell you the person's name, what it means, and you're going to get an idea of why they're there. All right. Now, last thing, lists. Some of you love lists. Some of you hate them. I hate them. I don't like lists of things to do, but I'm 50 now and I need them. All right. <clears throat> so we get our first list. It's the first list of the 11 of the 12. We'll have one more later on. We have first list here, and now we have our second list in a genealogy. Genealogies matter. If we see a genealogy in the Bible, what's our first inclination? What is it? Skip it. Stop it. Stop it. Matters. Hey, let's be honest. These writers know who wants to read a genealogy. Here's the thing. When a genealogy shows up, stop. Because something big is about to happen. Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, genealogy. At the end of the genealogy, Abram, what happens next? Ooh, yeah. Big deal. Chronicles, all kinds of genealogies. There's so many there, I kind of get it, right? But what are they doing? They're preparing to go back to the promised land because God's going to do something big. So Genesis 35, we're going to have a list. Just keep note of the list. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. All the underlined ones, Leah's children. Joseph and Benjamin, and then all the children, chronological order of the slaves. Okay? All right? Now, we're going to go to 46. Chapter 46 is where we get the first statement that the scepter will not depart from Judah. That the king will come from there. A lion. Revelation chapter 5. Now here we have, again, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, in order. Gad, Asher. Those are the Leah slave children. Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali. Entering into this new phase after the death of dad in Egypt. All right? Now, numbers. What's getting ready to happen in numbers? Where are they going? Promised land, right? All right, now we got another list. Reuben, Simeon, okay? The underlined ones are children of Leah. Gad, oddly placed. Who would normally go there? Third, Levi. Levi's not here. Huh. It's because this is the apportionment of the land. Levi doesn't have any land. Right? So Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, all those in that order. And at the end of the list, the slave children. All right. Now, Revelation 7. We're going to be, we're done. All right? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds, all of this. We get down to a list. 144,000, 12 from all these tribes. Here's the list. Judah, he's the first. Jesus. Reuben, Gad, Asher, and Aphlete. Notice what's happened. All the slave children move to the top of the list. Manasseh. That's weird. He's not any of the children. He's one of Joseph's children. Because Dan's not in the list. The rebellious ones are not there. Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin... There's been an inversion here, hasn't there? This is not like any list anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. Not the same ones, not all the children. Levi's here. He wasn't back there in numbers. Why? This is not, and if this offends you, if you disagree with me on this, that's fine. It's okay. 
That's all right. This is, gets people aggravated sometimes. This is not talking about literal Israel. This is the people of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Because notice what happens back here. Saw the four angels. I heard the number calling off the fighters. All right. Now, I looked, heard, looked, vast multitude, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And all of that starts with that list of boys back in Genesis 39, 29. God is at work throughout the entirety of the scriptures to establish for himself a people, and we, because of the work of Jesus, get to be a part of it. This whole story ties together, and when we can see those cords tying it together, it all makes sense, even ridiculous stories like this one. And Josh should be thankful that he didn't have to share with you on this. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness to us and how you are at the center of the story, that you hear, that you see, that you act. You are the giver and taker of life. You are the one who gives exceeding grace in the face of our abject stupidity. Lord, if there are folks here tonight that, that, that feel like their decisions are closer to the ones of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and all the rest. Lord, I pray that you would help them to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the brokenness of bad decisions is not your last word. Because even in the foolishness of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, you were working to accomplish your purposes. And even in all of our sinful choices, you are working to accomplish your purposes. And that there is not one thing in the lives of those who belong to you that is a waste. It is all for our good and your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, to know that, to embrace it for our everlasting good. It's in Jesus' name we pray.